0: To do something a bit different today, I talked recently with Professor Philip Munoz from the University of Notre Dame. He's one of the nation's leading experts on the First Amendment's Free Exercise Clause. And so we talked about that clause, about how the founders originally understood what they were doing with that clause, and about some of the modern interpretations of the Free Exercise Clause at the Supreme Court, and about some of the challenges that we face with respect to religious liberty and modern government. Philip, you have done some really interesting work on the U.S. founding in American political thought and particularly religious liberty, how we understand the First Amendment and how we understand the Free Exercise Clause. So let me take you back. What I want to do is talk a little bit about the founding and then think about some of the more recent cases like Sherbert versus Werner and then Oregon versus Smith. But let's go back to the founding. If you were to describe the founder's view of religious liberty and what they were doing by protecting the free exercise of religion in the First Amendment, how would you describe that?
1: Yeah, well, uh, thanks for having me and uh, hello to your class. Uh, I mean, that's a big question. Um, I'd say the essence of the founding, and maybe this is sort of the essence of the modern political project or liberalism, as people call it, is um, the idea that we're gonna limit government that there are some things government uh, shouldn't do, can't legitimately do. Um, uh, and the, the, the main limit or one of the principal limits is uh, government has no authority over certain aspects of our spiritual or religious lives, right? So it's no, no business of the government uh, whether you worship or not. So government can't punish you for worshiping in a certain way. It can't punish you for not worshiping uh, in a certain way just because we don't give government authority uh, over our religious exercises. Uh, So that's sort of the the very core element of um, religious liberty. That's why uh, we call religious liberty an unalienable right. We don't give up our authority over our religious exercises. Uh, We don't give our authority over to the government, that is, and therefore uh, the government lacks power or jurisdiction over a certain element of our um, private lives.
0: So is there a particular vision here for the founders or their generation about what religion actually is? It's one of those questions. The Supreme Court struggles with defining religion. Our religious studies department, if we went over and asked them what they study, they probably would all give different answers to that. Is there a view of, you know, what is that liberty that's protected? What is religion? What does it mean to be yeah, exercising your I mean, religion?
1: I mean, it's kind, of, it's kind of like what the Supreme Court said about pornography, you know, we know it when we see it. Um, Uh, Madison in his uh, Memorial and Remonstrance says uh, basically religion is the obligations we owe to our creator. Um, Yeah. I mean, that's maybe in a sense, uh, the essence of it, though, that's too, too broad. It's obligations of a certain sort. Um, Those obligations that are uh, both divinely inspired and um, go beyond uh, what we could call the natural law. The realm, the legitimate realm of political authority, involves the natural law. What goes, what's beyond, uh, sort of our super rational commitments, um, are the essence of uh, the founders' understanding of religion, divinely and, inspired, super rational commitments. Yeah.
0: And so the the natural law here would be something like our moral obligations, our obligations to other people, how we yeah, so t- take
1: the t- take the second table of the Decalogue, right? Thou shall know, not kill. Uh, well, that's clearly a, a, a religious command. You can find it in the um, Hebrew scriptures. But it's also uh, an under, look, we know that murder is wrong uh, without uh, appeal to revelation. So that's an, over- an example of an overlapping. It's both a religious precept and a moral precept available to reason, right? Well, we know that we shouldn't kill both by, by scripture or revelation and also by just our reasoning about our human equality and innocence. It's wrong to take innocent life. But there are certain precepts that uh, I'm Catholic. So the Catholic teaching is that one should go to mass every Sunday and confession you know, at least once a year. Well, those, th- let me just take confession, the sacrament of reconciliation, uh, how often and what ways one uh, uh, professes and receives forgiveness of one's sins. Those are matters of Um, Not simply accessible to the natural law, but known through uh, divine revelation and and the Catholic uh, understanding through the church teaching and tradition. Um, And those are the matters. So beyond the the natural law uh, that we know through uh, both scripture and tradition, those matters the state is to keep its hands off of.
0: So you have, in some ways, maybe a, a neat and tidy way of categorizing this that gets complicated in practice but you'd have on the one hand duties that we owe our creator as some of the founders would describe it some religious obligations that we have that go beyond what our normal or ordinary social and moral obligations to each other would be that would be the kind of thing that a community would regulate so we'll have laws on the books about not murdering each other we'll have laws on the books about not assaulting each other not stealing each other's property Trying to protect property rights, we'll even have laws on the books about marriage because it is a community-focused and oriented relationship, and it's structured by the laws of the community. But then we have other things like going to mass, engaging in the sacraments.
1: Oh, here's a perfect example of uh, baptism. Baptism, be, right? Um, look, uh, marriage is of interest to the political community because marriage is. Um, uh, tend to produce children, and the welfare of children is an obvious state interest, um, mm-hmm. both in terms of assigning responsibilities and t- paternity, but also children can't uh, take care of themselves. So the, the state has an interest in taking care, uh, making sure children are provided for and educated. And so the, the, the state interest of marriage is a sacrament, at least in the a Catholic tradition, uh, but it's also, uh, uh, we have civil marriage, right? Uh, you know, we, you get a marriage license, uh, and because the state, um, if you're going to be married, it's uh, likely or chance you'll have children, and the state needs to assign um, paternity, um, especially for the father, right? Uh, inheritance law, right? If both parents unfortunately die and there's no will, well, then the children. So there's all sorts of legitimate state interests in, in marriage. Uh, but baptism, you know, when, you, when should a child be baptized? What's the proper form of baptism? Uh, We, we say the state can't issue baptism, baptism licenses. You don't go down to city hall uh, because you want to do a baptism or you want your child to be uh, baptized because that's no business of the state.
0: And I brought up marriage partly because it gets into this challenge of how we structure our laws for the community and what we do about the free exercise of religion and what we do in the instance in which somebody claims that they are following their religion and in the course of following the religion, violate one of the laws that we've developed for the community. And how does that play in with the first amendment? So let me take you, I had mentioned Sherbert versus Vernon Oregon versus Smith, but before that take you to the 19th century cases about polygamy in the territories as just a setup for this and how the court approaches it. But you have an American religious community, the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day saints, that sanctions polygamy for its male members and people then who are married to multiple women who claim that they're doing that in the course of following their religious duties, that they're actually commanded to do that and sanctioned by the church that they're members of. And the laws of the states and the laws of the United States and the federal territory says you can't do that. That's a crime. And then you have these couple of Supreme Court cases that come up where they assert this liberty interest or liberty right to be exempt from the law. And I wonder if you could just talk us through that a little bit, because there are a couple things going on. On the one hand, you might have a claim that the law itself is just, it's an unconstitutional law, we have to throw it out. But then you have this other claim that I think people are actually making, which is the law is fine, you can ban polygamy, you just have to grant an exemption for people who practice polygamy for religious reasons. And it gets into this tension that we have between the rule of law and religious liberty and how we might understand that.
1: Yeah, yeah. The the case you referred to um, involving uh, uh, Mormons, as as they're colloquially knowing, uh, is from the 1870s. I think it's 1878 or 1879. And it's called Reynolds versus versus United States. George Reynolds was um, the secretary of Brigham Young, same Brigham Young that started BYU. And he was asked by um, uh, church authorities to take a second wife. Uh, and so it wasn't really simply just a claim that uh, he was practicing, uh, in this case, a bigamous marriage, um, uh, according to his religious tenets. I mean, he was. I mean, that, there's no doubt. I mean, uh, Mormonism clearly is a religion uh, under any constitutional definition. And he, this was a religious exercise in his uh, self-understanding and in the church's understanding. Uh, but it was against federal law. Utah at the time was a, a federal territory and the, thus governed by federal law and federal law at the time made bigamy and polygamy uh, illegal. Uh, Abraham Lincoln in one of his speeches talks about the twin barbarisms of polygamy and slavery. Um, So uh, Reynolds is convicted uh, for practicing bigamy, uh, sentenced to two years hard labor uh, and a $500 fine. And then he appeals his conviction um, saying, uh, this is the exercise of my religion. First Amendment protects the free exercise of religion. Uh, this law can't be applied to me. So he didn't say the law was simply unconstitutional. It was unconstitutional as applied to him, that is, uh, someone who's practicing uh, polygamy or bigamy for religious reasons. Uh, And the court simply said no. Uh, The First Amendment does not grant exemptions to the law. And um, I mean, the, the court's rationale was lacking in one sense. The court really didn't really Set forth, well, what does the free exercise clause of the First Amendment protect? Uh, they just said it, it doesn't provide religious believers exemptions from otherwise valid, valid laws.
0: And that changes a bit in the 20th century. And the paradigmatic case, and the students have read this, we talked about it, is Sherbert versus Werner in 1963. And that case has some nuance to it. I'm always struck when I go back to read these cases, there's kind of a way that we tell the story and there's some nuance in the case itself. But the way that we often tell the story is this woman, Adele Sherbert, works at a textile mill and she can't work on Saturdays or doesn't work on Saturdays because she's a Seventh-day Adventist and she observes Sabbath on Saturdays. And she's fired from her job for not being able to work. She applies for unemployment benefits. The state of South Carolina then denies her claim for unemployment benefits. And she says that she should have gotten those unemployment benefits, that she should be exempt from the rule that you have to be available for work in order to get the benefits because she's just not available on Saturdays. And then the way with that we remember it is uh, that this is, it stands for the idea of exemptions for religious liberty from these generally applicable laws. Is that your understanding of the case? Is there more going on there than that? And, um, uh, And as a kind of second part of that question, how do scholars understand Sherbert and the founding? Are they in tension? Is this a new direction from what we see, how the founders understood religious liberty, or is this uh, part of the same basic trajectory?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Well, there's uh, at least two questions there. Um, In your basic summaries, yeah, I think that's basically right. I mean, the case is more complicated for any number of reasons, but the essence of it is in Sherbert, the Supreme Court for the first time uh, uh, says the Free Exercise Clause does grant a constitutional right to exemptions um, for, for religious believers uh, when their religious beliefs or practices are burdened. Um, it's not quite that simple, but it's it's that's the essence of it. Um, the Supreme Court doesn't exactly overturn Reynolds. They don't really talk about Reynolds. But effectively, they give a new construction or a new approach to what free exercise um, means. Um, the, the The decision was not really um, concerned with the founding. There's no real discussion of the founders or the founders' understanding at all. Uh, justice Brennan uh, writes the majority opinion, uh, the great liberal justice of the second half of the 20th century. Um, it's actually very helpful, I think, to uh, maybe talk about Brennan's approach to the Constitution. Right? Brennan is known as one of the leading authors of what's known as living constitutionalism. Uh, that, um, to oversimplify, you now the Constitution must be uh, uh, updated to, to to be alive, to be kept up with the times. And um, he he presents this in a speech. I think it's 1989 or 1988 or. Uh, in the '80s, sometimes at Georgetown University, and he says, "Look, um, the world of the founding is long gone, and modern government does so many more things now, and we have to adapt the founders' principles to our times, including the modern administrative state." And I think he has actually has religious liberty in mind. He says, "Look, he doesn't quite say this, but this is his reasoning: there was no unemployment compensation in the 18th century or 19th century." This is not something the government does, but it does do it now. And take the perspective of Adele Sherbert. She was fired for her job because she won't work on Saturdays. Okay, well, you can say the employer at the time had a right to do that. So she files for unemployment compensation a benefit from the state and she's denied. From Justice Brennan's point of view, Adele Sherbert is denied an otherwise available benefit because of her religious practices. And he says, look, that's the equivalent of a fine. We can't fine her for practicing her religion, but to deny her these otherwise available benefits is like a fine. So in the context of the modern administrative state, when the state uh, interacts with religious individuals in so many more ways than it used to, in new ways, Brennan said it makes sense to apply the free exercise clause in a modern way. And that modern way is uh, exemptions. So ordinarily, if you get fired for cause, uh, Adele Sherbert didn't show up for work. So ordinarily, if you get fired for cause, you don't get unemployment compensation. But if you don't show up for work for religious reasons, um, you should get your unemployment compensation. Now, the danger is, well, once people know that, then they'll you know, not show up for work and get unemployment compensation, you know, uh, even if they're not religious. And so people automatically get the exemption there's an evaluation, um, you know, are, are, is it, are you uh, a sincere religious believer, was your religious beliefs, um, were they really burdened um, substantially, uh, did the state have a compelling interest to burden your, so it, it's a more, it's not an automatic exemption, there's a judicial test um, to evaluate claims on sort of an individualized basis. Uh, but that's Brennan's sort of modern approach to the Constitution, to update the Constitution. To make so what's,
0: it- the, what's, what's the living part of the living Constitution with respect to this case? Is it that we understand free exercise differently or we're yeah. just now applying it to this new situation, it, it, which is right. unemployment benefits?
1: Yeah, I think Brennan, Brennan would say we're applying it differently. It doesn't really matter how the founders understood it. What matters now is um, what religious freedom means in our times. And and the other the other part, and this is not often noticed, Brennan basically gives a balancing test. Um, The state can burden the free exercise of religion in some circumstances if the state has a really good reason to do so. So there's another case that comes in the 80s um, is Amish. They didn't want to use um, Social Security numbers. They said for, for reasons we don't really have to talk about. They they said the use of Social Security numbers is against our. Our religion. Um, And this was not just a made up claim. There's some real reasons why that claim uh, is sincere and believable. And the government says, no, you got to use social security numbers because it's a compelling interest. It doesn't matter if it burdens your religion. Um, You know, that's uh, our interests are sufficiently important that the government's going to burden your religion. So, in the Brennan understanding, the government can burden religious exercises when it has a legitimate reason to do so. And the government can excuse you from uh, otherwise generally applicable laws if the government wants to indulge you. So the, ca- the the founder's view is more categorical. Congress shall make no law abridging the free exercise of religion. Uh, Brennan's view is, well, we can burden religion and we can alleviate burdens. It's just a different understanding of uh, the role of the judiciary and, and constitutionalism more generally.
0: This is an important point that you've explored in your scholarship, but I think it's worth highlighting and you've helped me think through some of these questions, but it, from one perspective, you would have categorical things that are off limits. And so you're not going to tell a family when they baptize a child or that they can't baptize a child as an example that you gave, but things have changed. And one of the things that's changed over time is that we have a much more diverse religious landscape in the United States, and we had probably a more diverse religious landscape even in the colonial era than we often recognize. But the examples that we can give and probably that a lot of the framers had in mind were examples that they would have been familiar with from Christian practice and ritual and some from Jewish practice and ritual, but it would be the kinds of things that we would think about in terms of going to church, attending a service, engaging the sacraments, observing Sabbath, something like that. But once you widen out the religious experience, and it has to do now with all sorts of different things that might go beyond that extends into whether or not you're getting a social security number, it extends to how long you might grow your beard, it extends to you know which days, not only which days you work, but what kinds of things you do while you're at work and on the job and what kinds of insurance plans you might want to buy you know, this whole swath of life where religious beliefs might have an impact. And then certain activities like marrying more than one person, or to give some examples, even from those 19th century cases, they were talking about ancient child sacrifice as a religious ritual. And everybody agrees, well, sure, that was genuinely religious, but it's not something that we would condone. So the solution then is not, there's nothing categorical about something That is done in the name of religion. You can't engage in child sacrifice because it's a religious practice. You can't engage in the, you know, the ancient practice of burning widows along with their husband when the husband dies. And so we're not going to say anything's categorically off limits. What we're going to say is that if there is a burden on your religious liberty we're going to ask whether the government nonetheless has a good reason to burden your religious liberty. And if they have a good reason and the, you know, the court will say things like a compelling interest in the eyes of the judges, if the judges think that, yeah, the government's interest is sufficiently compelling here, then we will allow the policy to be applied against a religious objector. And that would just be the framework that you approach every religious liberty case. There's just, there's nothing that would be categorically off limits.
1: I think, I think that's, that's right. Basically. I mean, the the, the court has said and still in place that you can't target religious beliefs as such. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a 1993 case. The court m- makes that um, pretty clear. Uh, and what would that be? You, know,
0: I'm, you can you believe know, what you want, but but you can't, yeah, I mean, you can't act no. on it if it violates the law and if the government yeah. has a, a good reason yeah. to, to prevent that. Yeah. So fast forwarding a bit and taking it then to this case of Oregon versus Smith in 1990 which seems like it sets up a direct challenge to Sherbert versus Werner. If you read a little closer, maybe it doesn't. But what's going on in this Oregon case and how does it compare and stack up against Sherbert versus Werner? What's the court doing here?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a crazy case. And the more you actually read about the background of the case, the crazier it gets. So I'll, I'll leave uh, some of the more interesting uh, parts out. Um, uh, the, let me just mention this one thing, though. That- um, the context is uh, uh, this is a law in Oregon. Um, uh, Oregon makes peyote use illegal. Peyote is a hallucinogenic um, controlled substance. It's usually not abused. It's, um, uh, I'm told it's, it's not a uh, pleasant, usually a pleasant experience. But this Native American church um, uses it, uh, peyote, as in, in one of their uh, religious uh, rituals. So these two guys. Um, Alfred Smith and Galen Black uh, go out and they participate in this coyote ritual. Um, then they go back to work. They're given a drug test at work. They fail the drug test and they're terminated um, from their place of employment. Uh, it turns out that these guys, uh, this is one of these things you can't really make up. Um, these guys are drug counselors for the state of Oregon. I think they work for the state or they work for some company. But anyways, the drug counselors, so they get fired because they test positive for drugs. They file for unemployment insurance and the state denies them un- unemployment insurance. And then they sue. They say, look, Mrs. Sherbert got her unemployment insurance. She got filed. Uh, she got it. Because she won because she was practicing a religion. Can't deny unemployment insurance for people practicing their religion or terminating from their jobs. Exact same situation. And uh, the state of Oregon is pretty insistent on denying these guys unemployment insurance. And it gets up to the Supreme Court a couple of times now. What's going on in the background, and this is not essential for our purposes, it just makes the case interesting. Uh, The attorney general of the state of Oregon is um, adamant that he's not going to give these guys an exemption. It's because he has a burgeoning religious cult in the middle of his state at the time. uh, A guy named the Bhagwan Nish. And uh, this guy set up camp in the middle, I think he was from India, set up camp in the middle of Oregon. Um, and I don't know, It's one of these things in the 80s. There's got this big cult following, and the attorney general is um, nervous about this cult and their activities, and he doesn't like the idea that this cult could get exemptions from laws. Uh, A law professor named Garrett Epps has written very interestingly about this, if you want to read into the background. Anyways, he gets up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court, and I think a surprising decision, this is in 1990, basically overturns the Sherbert approach. Um, uh, it's more complicated as you say, but but basically they say, no, the first amendment doesn't give exemptions from generally applicable laws. These guys, uh, Albert Smith and Galen Black, if they could be arrested for payout use, um, they can be denied unemployment insurance and they could be arrested. They weren't arrested, but they could be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's basically the no exemption approach. Goes back to the Reynolds case um, the first amendment free exercise clause does not provide exemptions from generally applicable law. As long as those laws are actually generally applicable and uh, neutral towards religion.
0: And I had mentioned the nuance and you mentioned that too, in this case, but when I was rereading it, I noticed in Scalia's majority opinion that he distinguishes between what's going on in Sherbert in this case, because he says, well, this is a criminal matter that there are, are no exemptions to generally applicable criminal laws. But in the case of, of Adele Sherbert, well, you have a kind of exemption built into the law because it, it allows the administrators to weigh whether they have good reasons for not being able or available to work and that kind of thing. So it's kind of curious actually if in Scalia's own mind or if the mind of the court that they were not overturning Sherbert versus Werner, but they were just limiting its holding and reaffirming an older tradition.
1: Yeah, no, I think, uh, I don't really know what was going on. I mean, I think Scalia wanted to overturn Sherbert, but I think he probably didn't have quite the votes to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a, uh, the Smith decision is 6-3, and my guess, I, and I don't know this to be true, but my guess is that he didn't have six votes to overturn Sherbert, but he had six votes to sort of make this carve out for Sherbert. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure who the, O'Connor and I don't know who that that additional vote would have been. I just don't know. Trying to square Smith with Sherbert is probably the least persuasive thing uh, Antonin Scalia has ever written. Uh, and it might. This also is another guess. My guess is he wrote it in such an unpersuasive way because he didn't actually believe it.
0: He's trying to he, point other people to why this actually yeah. makes no sense. Yeah. In the future, yeah. when you read this yeah. case.
1: Yeah. No, I, I mean, I don't know, but I think. Yeah. Uh, but for for our practical you know for practical purposes. Um, he narrowed the exemption, uh, so narrow, you know, it, uh, that it, yeah, you know, other than unemployment insurance cases, there's no exemption.
0: Yeah. So for the purposes of constitutional law, and this is really where we'll end. And then next week as a class, we're going to talk about the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and uh, some of the movements at the state level to protect religious liberty through exemptions by statute rather than. Through the constitution, but as far as constitutional law goes, after 1990, we are back to this basic place where if you have a generally applicable law, it's in the interest of the community. The court says, Look, the government has a, a compelling interest here to pass this law, they're not really targeting your religion, it's, it applies to everybody. If that's the case, and the law is applied against a religious objector, the answer just is too bad to the religious objector that it is the case that the rule of law demands that the that the rule applies to everyone equally and that there will be no religious exemptions to those generally applicable laws. Is that the state of play right now?
1: Yeah, uh, well, basically, I mean, it, it's um, it's a little bit more than too bad. It's So um, there's a number of questions. First of all, let, is the law actually neutral and generally applicable? Let's assume it is. Um, and then, okay, so there's some law in practice that burdens a religious exercise. Court asks, is the law neutral and gen- neutral towards religion and generally applicable? Neutral towards religion means it doesn't target religion; it doesn't single out religion. If the law is neutral and generally applicable, then it is too bad. But the too bad is there's no um, constitutional remedy uh, for your situation. Therefore, your rem- there's two legislative remedies. Uh, the first legislative re- remedy would be um, the legislature creates an exemption. So, uh, Congress has done this for military service, for example. If you're con- called conscientious objectives, so if you have a religious or spiritual or moral reason uh, to, to not participate in con- combat, you can be exempted from the draft. So, uh, to say that there's no constitutional right to an exemption doesn't mean that there's no exemption, it just mm-hmm. means it's not done via the Supreme Court or the judicial branch through constitutional interpretation. That is, the legislature, whether state or federal, can grant exemptions on a case-by-case basis, meaning a category of law. The the second uh, remedy legislatively is, well, you can overturn these laws. Um, If uh, a law is unjust as applied to a certain category of people, um, maybe you shouldn't have that law but that's for the people to decide, right? So one response to the, uh, just to take a really controversial subject, you know, the uh, what's known as the HHS mandate. This is part of Obamacare and there's this ongoing, still ongoing litigation, these nuns who don't want to have to buy contraception for their employees. And um, the nuns, right, you know, for understandable reasons, these are Catholic nuns say, look, uh, our church, uh, teaches against artificial uh, birth control. Um, The Catholic teaching is that um, there are scientific natural uh, methods of uh, spacing out pregnancies, but uh, we don't believe in artificial contraception, uh, the nuns say, and therefore we're not gonna buy these products because we think they're they're morally and religiously uh, evil. But the government says that you have to provide in your health insurance, you have to basically buy contraception for your employees. The nuns say they have a free exercise right or, or a statutory right to an exemption. Well, one solution might be, look, we don't make anyone buy anyone birth control. I mean, you could actually have Obamacare and just not include birth control, right? I mean, we'd say, look, th- these are private matters. And so that that would be another remedy. So just because the there's no constitutional right doesn't mean, well, if the law is bad, then the people can overturn it.
0: And that's there's
1: a whole nother level here, though. We also have to get into which is, is the law actually neutrally and generally applicable? Mm -hmm. And the court has often found in these cases, well, no, the law isn't actually neutral. This was the masterpiece cake shop, the the cake maker. Mm -hmm. Um, And if the law is not actually neutral, then it can be set aside, basically giving exemptions from, you know, to particular uh, litigants
0: right and in that case you had evidence that came in that people were actually targeting him and targeting uh, his practice because of religion that it wasn't actually neutral and a lot of this it's helpful to point out is done now through administrative regulations and so you know the couple of examples that you gave it was a, it it was a commission in Colorado i think and it was the commission's actions and then in the case of the affordable care act it's not the act itself it's not the language of the of the law it's an administrative rule passed under the law and yeah
1: and this is part of brendan's point actually you know that um here you have laws that are not even actually made by congress in fact it, at the time um a birth control mandate would have passed congress uh, there's enough objections to it in congress but it was done through uh uh regulations to implement obamacare uh, implemented by the department of health and human services
0: right um, through delegation
1: yeah, a, a, a branch of the executive branch, which whether conservative or liberal tends to be very politicized. Um, let me add one, one other thing earlier. When you said um, a little while ago, you know, we're so much more religiously pluralistic now than, the, than at the time of the founding. I mean, that's true in, a, in an obvious sense. You know, the Mormons didn't exist at the time of the founding, just to take an American example. But what's really changed, I think is not so much our religious diversity is the growth of government and what government does uh, the birth control um, is a good example, right I mean probably would have been unthinkable to the founders for any number of reasons that if you're a large company and you want to hire someone you have to buy them birth control. you know w- our lives are regulated uh, by the state by the state and federal government in ways that are dramatically different uh, and that and that process started in the 30s and really accelerated in the 60s and and so the, the, the more regulated uh, the private sphere is, before we would say businesses were part of the private sphere, the public sphere was the governmental sphere. Now we think the public sphere is er- anything outside the, our home. And anything outside of our own private home, our places of, of employment, um, can be regulated by the government. That's what's really changed. So let me just so
0: that. And so you have more opportunities for conflicts
1: more opportunities for conflict. So the case before the Supreme Court right now, this is, involves the Catholic Church and uh, uh, foster care. Catholic Church has been doing foster care longer than America has existed uh, in Pennsylvania. And what's new now is that to do foster care, and this is basically finding homes for kids who are the most unfortunate uh, members of our society, um, but you have to be licensed by the state and you have the state controls all this. Uh, so the state and for good reason, I'm not saying the state shouldn't do this, but now the state is imposing sort of moral regulations on who you must serve and who you must not serve that intrudes on what used to be part of a private activity. Maybe those intrusions are good, maybe they're bad, but they create more conflict.
0: Yeah, and there's very little now, it seems, that truly is private. There's John DiIlio at Penn had an essay a while back in national affairs. I thought was really interesting. And one of the terms that he used when he was trying to actually get an estimate of how large the government is, just how big it is, is uh, what he called big government and big government's private administrative proxies. And the private administrative proxies are all of those nonprofit organizations that we consider private organizations who are funded mainly through government dollars. And, If we're trying to really survey the landscape, even a lot of our social service organizations, our private organizations, our private universities, a lot of those are receiving federal dollars in one way or another, and so are subject to federal regulations as it affects their business and and what they do. And so most of life is touched in some way. And I guess this to bring it back to the the general challenge of religious liberty, the, the challenge then is if you have... If you value religious liberty, if you value religious freedom, and if you value religious pluralism, that people have a a right to decide the way in which they'll carry out their religious duties and obligations, and you also have a very complex society in which regulation touches almost every sphere of life from the government, then it seems, it doesn't have to be the case, but it seems like exemptions could be at least one way of tackling that. And then you get that, that constitutional question, does the First Amendment require it? do judges do it? Is this a a judicial function? If judges aren't going to do it, if they stand back from it, is it legislative? Do we trust our legislators to do it? Could legislators be truly representative here? You know, you have the problem of it's precisely those kinds of minority religious organizations that are going to be burdened. Are they going to have the kind of clout to influence their legislators? What if it's an administrative agency? How do you influence what they're doing and how insulated are the administrative agencies from actual politics, which is one of the designs of insulating them from politics. But if politics can't be the place in which you redress your grievances, where do you go? You know, So there's all yeah. sorts of really interesting questions here. I think yeah, no, these, from, from these, these cases.
1: These, these are all very uh, good and challenging questions. I mean, the issue of religious liberty is a way to understand sort of modern administrative government in America more generally. I think it's worth keeping in mind that, well, two things. One, we've always had exemptions legislatively. Uh, the Quakers from the draft at the time of the family. Quakers are pacifists, they didn't want to fight. um, And they were exempted by the first Congress. So there's always been a a role um, for exemptions in the American constitutional tradition, especially for minority religions. The growth of government uh, makes these questions uh, more challenging. Uh, The liberal approach was to uh, increase exemptions, especially to protect minority religions, numerically minority religions. The other dimension to the the modern situation is the rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, that those without religion. When the Religious Freedom Restoration Act passed in 1993, it was almost unanimous. Everyone agreed with it. Uh, Today, that would be a very partisan issue and it wouldn't pass. Um, um, So that in a way, you know more than religious diversity; it's our moral diversity that's really changed. Um, Tocqueville talks about how, whatever their differences, uh, uh, religious groups in America all teach the same morality. Well, religious groups don't teach the same morality, and we have a lot more people who are not religious now. Uh, so there's no more common um, American understanding of morality. I think, in some ways, that's fine. We could you know, we could survive as a nation with lots of moral differences, but it's harder when the government controls so much of our lives because then those moral differences um, become politicized.
0: And that is a, a good place to end. I think in this conversation, we're turning next week to think about the constitutional politics as we move from the Supreme court in these cases in the 20th century to constitutional politics at the legislative level once you transfer it to statutory politics and then to administrative politics in terms of how these rules get promulgated. And so we'll look at several cases that are more recent and get into the challenges that you just laid out for us. It's our increasing diversity with respect to religion, but also increasing diversity with respect to how we understand justice. So thank you for taking time to talk to us about some of these issues today.
1: My pleasure.